Oh, sweet Jesus, thank you uh, that you truly are a God who's always on time. And I pray as we reflect upon the prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, Lord, that you would bless us, uh, the first coming of the Messiah, and that you would just overwhelm us with how trustworthy and awesome your word is and how trustworthy and awesome you are. So keep me from getting in your way and bless us, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at one of the most amazing prophecies that relates to the life and ministry of Jesus that was literally written hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. And it laid out his whole ministry to a T. So I hope that you're blessed by this. But I want to start with this. In the book of Daniel, chapter 8 and verse 14, we see the longest time prophecy given in the entire Bible. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, it says, And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. 2,300 days and the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, what does that mean? What we do know is it has to do with the sanctuary. And if you remember from our third meeting together, if it has to do with the sanctuary, then that means it has to do with the life and ministry of who? Of Jesus, right? When you hear about the sanctuary, it's teaching you about Jesus, about his ministry, his life, and his purpose. And so it's going to have something to do with the plan of salvation, and we know that much. And as we've covered in a previous night, uh, when prophetic timelines like this are given, they use a day for a year. So it's actually a 2,300-year prophecy, which is massive. That's a long time. Anyone here ever lived that long by chance? Yeah, it's a long time. Um, so super, super long time. So what we're going to do now is read the following verses after Daniel's given this allusion to this point. In Daniel chapter 8, what happens right before he's told this is he's given a vision of a ram and a he-goat. We alluded to this in a previous night together, uh, how there's kind of this war between a ram and a he-goat, and the goat wins, and then the four horns of the ram eventually turn into one small horn that's wreaking havoc. And um, that vision concludes, and when Daniel's seeking understanding on that vision, an angel sent to give an interpretation, and one of the things that's mentioned to him at the conclusion of that is uh, 2,300 days until the sanctuary is cleansed. We'll deal with that topic more tomorrow night, this idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary. And then it goes on for further interpretation, and that's here now in Daniel chapter 8, beginning of verse 16. So I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. This word understand is very important in Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. So he came near where I stood, and when I came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. But he said to me again, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. There's two aspects to the vision he has in Daniel 8. There's the, the vision of, of the saints being persecuted and trampled and, and this, this havoc that's being wreaked. And there's also the time period of the 2300 days or years. These two things he doesn't quite know what to do with. So the vision regarding the havoc of the people is to the time of the end. Um, and then the vision of the evenings and mornings, which is the second part, the 2300 days, which was told is true. He's not really given an interpretation about that time period, just the fact that it's true. And it says, therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but how many people understood it? No one understood it. It was overwhelming to him. There's a physical reaction to how overwhelmed he is. Do you see that? He literally faints. It's so stressful. So 
Gabriel helps in Daniel 8, but he still doesn't understand all of what's going on here. And so in, verse, in chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9 begins with this long, passionate prayer from Daniel, pleading with God to intervene on behalf of his people. He's, he's repenting for the nation. He's praying, you know, that God would forgive their sins, that he would be faithful and keep covenant with his people. Just this passionate prayer that I'd encourage you to read at another time, at the beginning of Daniel 9. And then at the conclusion of that prayer... I mean, part of, the, part of the vehemency and part of the, the tenacity and urgency for his prayer in Daniel 9 is that he doesn't understand what's going on in Daniel 8. And he knew from reading the books of Jeremiah that they would be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. But then he's given this picture, this prophecy that after 2300 years, then the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. And he's thinking, whoa, 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 you mean we have to stay longer? And so out of that kind of fear and anxiety, he's just praying his guts out in Daniel chapter 9. It's a whole other story that I wish I could go into and study. I just can't for time's sake. So now let's look at what he's praying about and what happens after his prayer is over, uh, specifically the interpretation he's given. So in verse 20, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer... In the very moment while I'm praying, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, in Daniel 8, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to do what? To understand. At the beginning of your supplications, a command went out, and I've come to tell you that you are greatly beloved. I love this. In the moments of Daniel's stress and anxiety and not understanding, God sends an angel to help him understand and to remind him that even if you don't understand what I'm doing or what I've said, what you will be able to understand is you're loved. You are greatly beloved and that heaven desires to help you because as soon as he prayed, the angel shows up and the angel tells him, at the very beginning of your prayer, I was dispatched. Even if we don't understand all what's going on right now, and Daniel didn't either, so don't feel bad. You know, people weren't going to understand this until after Daniel's dead and gone for years. But in this circumstance, the good news I can take from this is when we're overwhelmed and we don't know what's going on, heaven's listening to us. Heaven hears those passionate prayers, and they're willing to help us. They're willing to send angels to help us, and they want us to know that we are greatly beloved. That's something we can't lose sight of, even though we're looking at difficult prophecies. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now, part of the issue we need to understand here is that there is no vision in Daniel 9. Daniel 9 begins with a prayer, and then in verse 20, he's interrupted at the end of his prayer by an angel showing up. So the only vision then that they're telling him about is going to be the vision in Daniel 8 that he didn't understand. Does that make sense? This is why that word understand is a bridge between Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9. He's given a vision and he doesn't understand. In fact, no one understood it. Then we get to Daniel 9. He's praying his guts out for his people. An angel shows up and says, I've come to help you understand the vision. There's no vision in Daniel 9. So the only vision he can be talking about is the vision he didn't understand that's still unresolved from Daniel 8. That's what we know so far. Okay? And... That vision, 
is there. Now, in verse 24, so the vision that we're talking about specifically is this 2300 days. He doesn't know what's going on with this and what it means, okay, or 2300 years, literal years. So in verse 24, now he's going to give him some information about that vision to help him understand it, but he doesn't give him all of it, okay? So now in verse 24, it says that 70 weeks are determined. Now, the word that's used here is the word shatak, which means to cut off or to amputate. So what he's implying is 70 years of this 2300 years you don't understand, uh, 70 weeks of that timeline, I should say, are going to be cut off for your people. They're reserved for your people, okay? For the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from... The going forth to command and restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, so from one thing until another thing, from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. We'll get into the details here in a moment. But here's the first thing we know from what we're reading. That 70 weeks of time are going to be cut off from this larger time period. That's what he's telling him. That's the first thing that we know. Now, the word shatak means, again, to cut off or to amputate. But when you amputate something, it's usually connected to something else, right? It's connected to something else and usually something larger many times. So if you're cutting off a piece of time or if a piece of time is being amputated from something, what's it being amputated from? What do you think? If you're amputating time from something, what do you think it's being taken from? More time, right? Bigger time, a larger chunk of time. That's exactly what happens here. Okay, just for visual sake, you've got a large chunk of time, and he's saying, all right, 70 weeks of that are for your people. Okay, 70 weeks of this have to do with you, with your people, with the sealing of righteousness, putting away of sin, all of that. Okay, so that's what he's telling us so far. And they're both going to start at the same time. That's all we know. Now, those 70 weeks, how many days are in a week? Seven, right? So 70 weeks would be 490 days. But since we're dealing with the prophetic timeline again, we're going to do the same thing we've been doing and all the others. It's a day for a year and how to understand the math of what's going on here. So it's 490 literal years of that 2300 years are set apart for your people. That's what we know so far. Okay? So let's focus now on the 70 weeks. We'll deal with the 2300 years tomorrow. Okay, we'll address that in more detail tomorrow night. But tonight, let's just focus on the 70 weeks that are cut out from that larger timeline. We don't know exactly when this begins. So let's go back to verse 25 of Daniel 9 and see what it says. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, we're told how to break down this prophecy based upon the important events that happen within it. So he says that 70 weeks are set apart for your people, but then he gives a very interesting explanation. He says seven weeks and then 62 weeks. Well, that's only 69 weeks total so far. But the reason why he explains it this way is that there's important markers that happen after each of these things. So after seven weeks, something happens, and then after 62 weeks, something happens, and then we'll have one more week to finish with. Are you with me so far in this? 
Sometimes Bible prophecy can sound kind of confusing, but we're just kind of adding layer upon layer here to see what's going on. There's a 2300 years. We'll deal with that tomorrow night. He says, of that, this chunk is set aside for your people, for the Jewish nation. That's 490 years. And then they're going to lay this out, okay? So, what we do know is that after the first seven weeks, something significant should happen. And then after the 62 weeks that take place right after that, something else significant will happen, just based upon the way that they explain it. So what's the first thing we need to see? At the ver end of verse 25, it says, The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. Okay, so here's the first event that highlights that timeline. And this is talking about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, if you've ever read those sections of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, if you haven't, they're found in the Old Testament. But God's people were in captivity in a foreign land, in Babylon, and now it's being ruled by the Medes and the Persians. Remember from that statue, Babylon, Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. This is in the Medo-Persian time period. They're still in captivity. And in Ezra chapter 7, I'm just going to briefly summarize a couple points from this from my Bible. Uh, I would encourage you to write this reference down just for time's sake. We won't have a ton of time to do this. So in, it's Ezra chapter 7. If you want to write this down in your notes and go back and study this, there are multiple decrees given in the book of Ezra, but there's one that gave them full autonomy and political jurisdiction uh, and full freedom. And that's this one in Ezra chapter 7. Others had different, you know, variables to them. This is the one that gave them the full and free license back in their homeland. Ezra chapter 7 is where this is found. And I'm just going to read a couple brief, brief references from this letter that's written. Okay? This is from King Artaxerxes. He says, I have a decree that all those people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem, they may go with you. And... He says that you can carry with you in verse 15 of Ezra 7, you can carry silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And if you need anything more, we'll give it to you there too. Okay. It also says, take all the, the articles that were taken away from Bab by the Babylonians. You can take those back as well. And also, if you need um, bulls and rams and lambs and stuff to give offerings to your God, take it. Do what you need to do. Whatever seems good to you, all of that, take it according to the will of your God, take whatever you need. Verse 21, and I've issued a decree that all treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, whatever else you're going to need, whatever you need, just do it. And don't charge them taxes in verse 24 and so forth. And so the point is that the king is giving them full permission. You can have money to take with you. You're not going to be taxed. Take these articles that the Babylonians stole from the temple of God. Take those back with you. And they're given full autonomy to govern and do what they need to do to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay? That's what they're being told that they can do. So the first time segment, it said for seven weeks and then 62 weeks, until Messiah the Prince shall come. In that first seven-week period, which is 49 years, because um, it's seven times seven, uh, and it's a day for a year, that 49 literal years is when they finish doing this work. But it also said something here, that they're going to rebuild the streets and the wall even in troublesome times. 
when you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, I think particularly in the book of Nehemiah, they talk about how hard it was. There were people in the land that were discouraging them, saying it's never going to happen. You can't build this thing. They threatened to attack them if they built it. And literally there was a space in time when they're rebuilding Jerusalem that people could not even change clothes except to wash their laundry very briefly and come back. And they were kind of around the clock just because the wall wasn't finished. The city wasn't safe. So they're working around the clock to rebuild. And a guy would have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. It was that troublesome. Well, this is what was prophesied to Daniel. And so after those 49 literal years, they finished rebuilding Jerusalem. They finished the important aspects of the rebuild of Jerusalem in that first time chunk. So that's why they list it this way. Seven weeks and 62 weeks in the first chunk, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. They complete that portion. Now, the next significant event will happen after the 62 weeks. Okay, so we got the first part. That's 483 years uh, is, is what's going to happen in these first 69 weeks. So at the end of these 483 years, something significant needs to happen. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, history tells us that this began in 457. That decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was in 457 B.C. And if you go 483 years after that, we land at A.D. 27. Okay, so 69 of the 70 weeks end at A.D. 27. And it says until Messiah the Prince. So something about the Messiah needs to happen at that timeline, right? That's what we need to be looking for, okay? Well, in the New Testament, the word Christ, and in the Old Testament, the word Messiah, both mean the exact same thing, which is the anointed one, okay? So when it says until Messiah the Prince, we should be looking for an anointing of some form or fashion, okay? So specifically, we're talking about Jesus. So when does the anointing of Jesus happen? What's it about? What's the purpose for it? The Bible foretold this, so it's got to be significant. We find the first answer in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. It talks about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. Okay, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's how he was anointed. But when did this happen? We find that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. When Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water. We talked about this in our last presentation together. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we know that he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And what event took place where he was anointed with the Holy Spirit? It was his baptism, right? So here's why he was baptized. He announces this in Mark chapter 1. When we get to Mark chapter 1, the context is that Jesus is baptized. Then he has the temptation experience in the wilderness and overthrows the devil. And then the first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth, the first thing that he preaches... It's found in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what's the first thing that he says? The time is fulfilled. Now what time do you think he's referring to? 
It's the very prophecy of Daniel. Jesus is testifying that that time is fulfilled. The Messiah has come. I'm here to fulfill that prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9. And so that is the time that is fulfilled. Okay? Now, it's interesting. We're going to come to this actually just in a moment. I want to come back to this. Um, yeah, we'll do that in just a moment. So it says in, on the timeline here that Jesus, what well, says that there has to be a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That happens in 457. 483 years later, Jesus is baptized. And we know that based upon what we see in Luke chapter 3. Now, if you've ever read the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, he was kind of a nerdy historian, okay? Sometimes he took details that you just think, why on earth did you even say that? Who cares? The things that Luke took note of help us for historical markers. It's a real blessing that he did this. In Luke chapter 3, beginning of verse 1, it says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were both high priests. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. This is where Luke, a few verses later, talks about the same thing that we just saw previously, the baptism of Jesus. But he gives all this nerdy, historical, detailed information. Why? Because there's only one year when every one of these individuals filled this particular role. And you know what year that was? Exactly at the end of those 483 years from the decree to restore to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, A.D. 27. It's literally to the exact same year. And this is a year when it says that two people were serving as high priests. Caiaphas was eventually, um, or Annas was actually removed from being high priest, and Caiaphas took over. So they had kind of this transitional year during that particular time. So I think it's super fascinating that Luke gives these specific details so that we could go back through the history books and find out, well, when did that happen? Exactly when the Bible said that Jesus would be baptized in A.D. 27. To a T, Bible prophecy fully confirmed right to that very point. Now, let's go back to Daniel chapter 9 and grab some clues on what we should look for after this, right? Because that's only 69 out of the 70 weeks. So remember, the reason why they said seven weeks and 62 weeks is because two significant events happen. Instead of just saying the 70 weeks, right? They break it down so you should look for something in these time periods that's significant to what they talked about. The first was the rebuilding of Jerusalem after those 70 weeks. And now after the 62 weeks that took place right after that happened, we see the anointing of Jesus. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Now let's see what else that it foretells, because it foretold everything else very accurately. Going back to Daniel 9, beginning of verse 26. In, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25, 26, and 27, it's laid out in something that's called an A-B parallelism. Now that sounds super theological and nerdy, but the basic point is there's an A statement and a B statement, and an A statement and a B statement, and an A statement and a B statement in those three verses. All of the A's go together, and all of the B's go together. All the A statements talk about the Messiah. All the B statements talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's telling a story, but in a poetic format. Okay, so it's not to be read literally from 25 through 27 in chrono chronological order from what you read there. It's A, B, A, B, A, B. That's how the, the, they laid it out. 
So in verse 26, what's underlined and bolded here are the A statements, kind of highlighting the Messiah. The B statements are the ones that aren't underlined. But it says this in verse 26, And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Okay? That's speaking about the Messiah. Then the city, the people of the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Picking back up to the Messiah's story now in verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Going back to the city now and for the B statement, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Okay, so when it says after the 62 weeks, that's technically after the 69 weeks because it's seven first and 62. So it's basically saying after Jesus is baptized, he's going to be cut off. Okay? After he's baptized, he'll be cut off, but not for himself. Okay? And then he's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week, starting in this process. So there's the confirmation of a covenant in some form or fashion in this last week, this 70th week that we have in the closing part of this prophecy. Okay? So what is this confirming of the covenant that they're talking about? Well, Jesus uses some interesting language in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28. This is halfway through that seven years. Does anybody know how long Jesus' ministry was by chance? He announced his public ministry at the age of 30, and then he lived for how much longer than that? Does anybody know? All right, maybe a few of us know. Yeah, so three and a half years is how long his ministry lasted. He was crucified, okay? He was crucified three and a half years into this circumstance, and it said, in the middle of the week, he should be cut off, but not for himself. Yeah? So in the middle of that last seven years, Jesus will be crucified. We'll come back to those details in a moment, but super important here. So this is on the eve of his crucifixion. He says, uh, when he hands the cup to the disciples, we talked about this a few evenings ago, actually about a week ago, says, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So he's having that kind of communion service with the disciples that last Passover with them. So he's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week, and he dies in the middle of that week. He takes the cup, which represents the new covenant, and he shares it with the disciples. Okay, And he says, it's my blood of the new covenant. Well, when someone had a sacrifice in the sanctuary, because when he talks about my blood being significant, you should be thinking sanctuary, right? Jesus isn't just using random gory language. Blood Cleansing from sin, blood dealing with the sin problem should immediately bring our minds back to the sanctuary service. And when they had blood, where did they sprinkle that blood after sacrifice is offered? Do you remember? On the veil. They would go into the sanctuary. They would sprinkle it potentially on the altar there, uh, the altar of incense right in front of the veil. But then they'd sprinkle it on the veil. And if you remember, the veil was that thing that separated man from the presence of God. God's presence was found in between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant inside of the most holy place. So this veil was significant in the sanctuary service as a barrier of protection. As we have sinned, we couldn't be in the immediate presence of God. We would die if that were to be the case because we heard that our God is a consuming fire, if you remember from a previous presentation. So it's sprinkled on the veil which separated the holy place from the most holy place. That's how it worked in the sanctuary services. But interestingly enough, when Jesus dies, there's some phenomenons that happen, or some interesting phenomena that happen during his death, right at the close of his death. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51, after Jesus dies, there's an earthquake, and the veil from the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
signifying that no man has done this. This is an act of God, tearing the veil. Why? Because the veil was again a means of separating God from man. And when Jesus died, that means of separation has been dealt with fully and completely. Amen? That direct access is afforded again because there's been a perfect man who's lived the light that we have not lived, who's blazed a trail to heaven for humanity through his blood, through his suffering. So Jesus breathes his last, creation goes crazy, and the veil in the sanctuary is torn. Now this was a really thick veil. You couldn't just tear it. This isn't tissue paper. So this is very clearly something that God himself did. But remember in Daniel chapter 9, it says that the Messiah is going to bring an end to sacrifices and offerings in the middle of the week. Well, that's what's happening here. The sanctuary is closed for business now, right? Daniel predicted this 500 years before it happened to a T. That veil is torn, and what God is trying to show the nation of Israel is the sanctuary service has lost all of its significance. It was pointing to something that would come, and that time has come. Are you with me? That time has come. Jesus has fulfilled what the sanctuary service was teaching, right, in the daily sacrifices. That has just happened, right? It has just taken place. The real lamb is hanging on a tree outside of the city. So the veil is torn, and I think this is amazing. Like, literally, exactly what prophecy said would happen is happening on the exact timeline that they said it would happen, which is only showing us even more clearly the Bible is awesome, (laughs) that we do serve a God who is always on time. Jesus truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's confirming a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of that week, he will bring it into sacrifice and offering. In the middle of that last week, three and a half years in, he dies, right? The Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. It's for you and for me. Yeah, you seeing that? So he's bringing it into sacrifices and offerings, which are offered in the sanctuary. So that law that's nailed to the cross isn't the Ten Commandment law. It's the law of sacrifices and offerings. That's what's nailed to the cross. He's putting that away because we know, we're know we told that New Covenant Christians have the law of God written in their heart and in their mind. God doesn't want to get rid of that. That's how He does life. That's to our benefit. What He's getting rid of is a sanctuary service that's teaching us about the future ministry of Jesus that's no longer the future ministry of Jesus. Does that make sense? Jesus has now fulfilled those sacrifices and offerings perfectly and exactly at the time that the Bible said that would happen. But we're only in the middle of that last week. Um, that's, that's where we are right now. The middle of the week, you see the cross there. In A.D. 31, Jesus dies. Now, some of us may get confused here. It looks like four years from A.D. 27 to A.D. 31. But Jesus was baptized in the fall of A.D. 27, and he dies in the spring of A.D. 31. That's three and a half years later. Three years plus half a year carrying from the fall into the spring. Okay? That's how that math works out. Same thing's going to be for the case for this other one. Okay? So, what do we do with this last segment of time? Because Jesus isn't here anymore, right? But there's still three and a half years to go. So, something else important still has to happen to fulfill this prophecy. And it's not going to be Jesus that does this. It's something else. Okay? That's what we know so far, just from logic. So, what's left? Go to Matthew chapter 10. In verse 5, this is what Jesus says. He sends the 12 disciples out and he commands them saying, Do not go into the way of the the Gentiles. 
and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, if you remember, at the very beginning, whenever Daniel's being given an explanation about what's going on with this 2300 years, I don't understand that. He says, well, look, 70 weeks of that, 490 years of that timeline have to do with your people. This whole thing has to do with the Jewish nation. Now, they were told when the Messiah was coming, when he would be baptized, when he would die, were they ready? No. No. Even though the prophecy was there and the prophecy was crystal clear, they missed it. And they're about to run out of time to do something about it. Right? This was an important timeline for them as a nation. And there's only three and a half years left. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, while he's still doing his ministry on earth, focus on preaching to the Jews first. It's not because he's a racist. He understands there's a clock that's ticking, guys. His disciples don't understand it yet, but there's a clock that's ticking. So don't go there yet. They will go there, but not right now. Focus on the people of Israel. Focus on them first. Preach to them first because their time is running out as a nation. Okay? Their probation as a nation is closing. So before the cross, Jesus tells the disciples, go to the Jews only because their probation will forever terminate at the cross, soon after the cross. Now, he's not a racist. He sees the clock on the wall. And this has to do with the probation of a nation of Israel, not individual Jews. We're not saying that no Jews could be saved after the end of this time prophecy. What we are saying is the role of the nation of Israel was a role to be messengers, right? If you remember when we read Ezekiel chapter 36, God said, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my name, which you profaned among the nations wherever you went. He's saying, I called you to be evangelists to reach the world, and the world hates me because of what you're doing. This is a problem. And so they're given this prophecy in Daniel to realize, hey, guys, wake up. Wake up. The Messiah is coming. And if the nation of Israel is still looking for a Messiah who has already come, it makes logical sense they couldn't be his chosen spokesperson anymore. Doesn't it? Right? If you crucify and ignore the very Messiah that you're looking for, How could I possibly have you be the messengers to tell the world to receive the Messiah who's already come if you don't believe he's already come? That's just logic, right? So their time to be the special people, to be the spokespersons, is about to end. That's what this time prophecy is about. Are you with me tonight? Okay. That's what this whole thing is about. You have 490 years left. They've been spitting in God's face for years They haven't understood their calling. They've been narcissists. They've been nationalists, but they have not been evangelists. And God is saying, you've got a window here, one last window of opportunity, and the Messiah will come and be super clear that he's the Messiah. He won't mince his words. He's going to work miracles. He's going to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free, just like Isaiah said he would. And if you don't see it, I'm still giving you three and a half years after Jesus is dead to catch on to the fact that something important happened and your time is about to end as a nation. Did they get it? No, unfortunately. But that's what we're talking about here. So then we get to Acts chapter 7, after the resurrection of Jesus, after that uh, timeline has passed, and now this is right at A.D. 34, the fulfillment of this last portion of that time prophecy.
Stephen, uh, one of the, uh, the deacons, is preaching a powerful sermon. He's giving the history of the nation of Israel, kind of teeing them up, and they're just eating it in when he's giving the history. But then he turns and says that you guys do not understand. You've crucified the Messiah, and you're in trouble. And instead of responding in a positive way, they're livid. Now, it's very interesting what happens here in Acts chapter 7. In fact, if you want to turn there, you can. Um, I'm just going to look at a few couple additional details I won't have on my slides. If you want to write this down as a reference, you can do that too. Acts chapter 7, you can look at the whole circumstances of Stephen. He's given this mockery of a trial, just like Jesus was. They made false accusations against him to get him in trouble, just like they did for Jesus. And then as Stephen is closing out his sermon, they turn on him. Okay, in verse 54, it says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. And then who? Jesus. Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's literally testifying the very person who claimed to be the Messiah is indeed in the heavens, right next to God. This is what he's telling them. Now, they don't respond favorably, unfortunately. They cry out with a loud voice. They stop their ears. They don't want to hear what he has to say. And they run at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city. And what do they do? They stoned him. They're killing him. Outside of the city, by the way. Where was Jesus killed? Outside of the city. And they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Were there witnesses and clothes being laid down at Jesus' crucifixion? Yes. Yes. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Did Jesus say something similar to that to the Father while he was on the cross? Yes. Yes. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Did Jesus say something similar when he was being crucified? So what's happening here? It's literally a replay of the closing moments of the life of Jesus to remind them, guys, this is the day. Like literally, the 490 years are ending in this very moment. And he's trying to remind them of what's going on. And they don't get it. They don't get it. And when he had said this, what does it say about him? He fell asleep. Now, could you fall asleep if someone was smashing your head with rocks? No. No. What are they talking about? death, right? Even here, they're equating death to a sleep, just like we did a couple nights ago. This doesn't change their hearts. It's a repetition of the trial and death of Jesus, giving them one last chance to respond, and instead they, they kill the messenger, okay? So here's the time that was allotted for the Jewish nation, 490 years. The decree was given in 457 BC by King Artaxerxes. You see that in Ezra chapter 7. Seven weeks later, the city is finished, okay? That's in 408 BC. Then it says seven weeks and 62 weeks. 62 weeks after the city's finished, it says until Messiah the Prince, the anointing of Jesus, which happened at his baptism, right? And that happens in AD 27. And Luke chapter 3 gives us all the historical details that make that clear. This is the exact year that that happened. 
Then it says, in the middle of the last week, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And he's going to bring an end to sacrifices. Well, he's going to make a covenant with many for one week. And that he himself will be cut off sometime after his baptism. doesn't give specific time. But then it does say that he will put an end to sacrifices and offerings, which happened when he was crucified and the veil was torn from top to bottom. Okay? But we still have three and a half years to go. There were three and a half years of, of, the, Jew, of, of the disciples preaching amongst Jerusalem, amongst the inner circles. In fact, he even told them this beginning in Acts. Um, it's in chapter 1. He says in verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Even the locations he mentions here, that's Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, if you want to write that down for your notes. Jesus even tells them, you're going to start in Jerusalem, then you'll expand to Judea, and then eventually Samaria and all the world. He's again telling them, your first mission field has to be close to home because they've only got three and a half years left to respond. Does that make sense? And at the end of those three and a half years, we see Stephen stoned and clothes are laid at the feet of somebody. Who was that again? Saul. That's Saul of Tarsus, who eventually become Paul. This is a stirring event for him that will lead to his conversion later. Not in that moment, but will lead to his conversion later. And he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, is what it says in the New Testament. So after the 490 years for the Jewish nation to be God's messengers, after that's over, then the message is going to go to the Gentiles. Has this made sense so far this evening? Okay, especially with the recap. I know the numbers at the beginning, you're kind of like, where's he going? What's it happening? Numbers can be kind of complicated at times, but this is the layout. You're going to get my slides in the Google Drive folder if you'd like them. So you can kind of have these timelines and look through them for yourselves. Okay, plus there's also going to be a handout that gives more information on top of that. But in case you think that maybe that wouldn't have been so clear for the Jews in their day. Like, I wish Jesus would have made it a little more clear to them. He did. I'm so glad you said that. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells a parable here that leaves zero room for error, and they didn't go without understanding it. They did understand it. They just didn't like it. Matthew chapter 21, beginning of verse 33, says, Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, and he set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So he has a property. He has work for them to do. He turns that work over to them and steps away. Okay? Then it says in verse 34, Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servant to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. Okay, so he's saying, hey, where's my fruit here? Well, what do they do to them? And the vine dressers took his servants, they beat one, killed one, and stoned another. This is very similar language that's used, by the way, to what they did to the prophets in the Old Testament in Hebrews 11. They were beaten, they were sawn in two, right? They were, they were God sent messengers to them and they destroyed them. They rejected him. They didn't want to listen to them. So when Jesus comes around and John the Baptist comes around, they don't respond any differently. They do what they've been doing for hundreds of years, stopping their ears, not wanting to listen. Okay? Again, he sent other servants, and more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then verse 37. Then last of all, he sent who? His son, His son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and they cast him where? Out of the vineyard. Out of the the boundary. You could also say out of the city. And what did they do to him? 
They killed him. Who are they talking about? Jesus. God sends Jesus to be that final messenger to them. Second to last messenger if you count Stephen. But they give him the same treatment they gave Jesus, right? They don't listen. Verse 40, then Jesus goes in. And he has to. Jesus isn't being mean or hard. Just imagine, right? If your kids are on the precipice of disaster and they're not listening, are you, are you going to raise your voice a little bit maybe? Yes. You going to get a little animated? Why? Because you hate them? No. no, because you don't want them to be hurt. And, and nothing else you're doing is getting through to them. So Jesus hits this thing head on, guys. Head on. And he says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do to those vine dressers? Now, what they don't understand right now, and they're about to, but what they understand right now is he's talking about them. And so they jump straight into what's going to happen. It reminds me of King David. When, when Nathan comes in, after David has committed the sin with Bathsheba, he hurts her, gets her pregnant, takes her without her will, does what he does. After this, Nathan tells the story of this little ewe lamb, right? And he says, you know, what should be done about the situation is kill the guy. Like, this is terrible. You shouldn't do this. And then Nathan says, you're the man. And he's not saying, you're the man, David, high five. He's saying like, no, you're the guy. The very thing that you're reacting to, you didn't realize. I'm talking about you, bro. It's the same situation here. I'm talking about you, guys. So, but they don't realize it. So they say, he's going to destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to others who will render to him the fruits and their seasons. They're going to be destroyed and someone else will take up the mantle that they refuse to take. Did we just see that in the 490-year prophecy? To a T. That A-B parallelism in Daniel 9 and 25, 26, and 27 is Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. And eventually in A.D. 70, Jerusalem is destroyed. And it has never been rebuilt or reestablished since then. They do have a nation. The temple's never been rebuilt. It's never been the same since then. All according to what God said in Bible prophecy. Jesus said to them, Have you? So they don't realize that they have just indicted themselves with this statement. And so he says, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And then he goes in and says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. He's telling them there's still room for repentance for you individually. As a nation, time's over. But as individuals, if you fall upon the rock and are broken, you can be saved. And that happens for Saul of Tarsus. He eventually falls on the rock. Jesus tells him it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And a goat is a pointy stick to get a goat moving in a certain direction or a sheep moving in a certain direction. You're kicking against the very thing that's trying to help you and point you in the right direction. Stop it. And he does. And there were many other priests that became obedient to the faith, we're told, in the book of Acts. So some people did turn around. Nicodemus, by the way, did eventually come around. We talked about him the other night. Nicodemus does come around and gives everything he has for the cause. He couldn't during the life of Jesus. He struggled, but he did at the end. And we see this here. It will grind into powder. And that's the point. We're not saying Jews can't be saved. What we are saying is that nation can never fill that role of preeminence ever again. Their time has passed. So if you hear people saying we need to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple because Israel's coming to the fore, that's not what the Bible says. 
That's not what Bible prophecy is saying. Israel's time is over. Jesus is the only true Israelite to focus on at this stage from now on. He fulfilled all the things that Israel never fulfilled as a nation. He was winning souls. He was revealing the character of the Father to the Gentiles and others, to Samaritans and others. And his disciples carried on that work in his absence. The nation of Israel is not to be the focus of Christians from this point forward. It's not. That's not the focus. The nation of Israel is not the focus of Bible prophecy. Jesus is the focus of Bible prophecy. He's the only true Israelite. Amen? Amen. That's what we've seen here. That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 45. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking of them. They see it. And it, to me, it's, it, it's heartbreaking, but it's also somewhat comical. You know, I, I think he's talking about us. Of course he's talking about you. And you're still not getting it. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So the kingdom is taken from the Jewish nation and given to another. He was warning them. He warned of the inevitable result of rejecting the Messiah, just as Daniel did. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. And it happens in AD 70. They didn't want to respond to his merciful appeal. He had to be direct with them, but it was out of mercy that he did it. You see that, right? Okay. So we get to Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, speaking to their Jewish audience. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we're turning to who? The to the Gentiles. For the Lord has so commanded us, I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for the salvation to the ends of the earth. So after AD 34, Paul, the disciples, and the apostles began to preach to the Gentile world, and that's when the Christian church was started. I'm not a Jew today, but I have access to God just like they did. Amen? Amen. Because of Jesus. So again, we'll just walk through another brief summary of this timeline just to make sure that everybody understands what's going on here, and then we'll close out with a couple, another, uh, a couple more thoughts here. So the decrees given in 457 by King Artaxerxes, that's found in Ezra chapter 7, seven weeks into that prophecy, seven weeks and 62 weeks after seven, the city's finished. 62 weeks later, Jesus is baptized. Then it says he'll confirm a covenant with many for how long? For one week, okay? The last seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will be cut off, but not for himself, okay? And he's going to bring an end to sacrifice and offering. The veil's torn, signifying the sanctuary is closed for business, the real lamb's hanging on a tree outside of the city. Then in AD 34, three and a half years later, the very trial and death of Jesus is repeated in the life of Stephen and death of Stephen to remind them that their door is closing. And then the gospel moves on to the Gentile world. This is that chunk that's separated from the 2300 years of Daniel 8. It deals with the probation of the Jewish nation and the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, if Jesus was really God, then that means that God came to earth and visited our planet as a human being. He lived with the human beings that he created and was assassinated by those created beings so that the world could see him. And then he was rejected, resurrected and went to heaven. Now, do you think those qualify as the most significant events the world has ever witnessed? What do you think? Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. This is an important prophecy, guys. And the Bible gave all of the details of this story to a T. These are credentials, again, for the validity of the Word of God. And listen to what Jesus himself said with the language that he used in his time on earth. In John 2, 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. John 7, verse 6, my time has not yet come. John 7, verse 30, his hour had not yet come. Now we know what that hour is. 
But in John 12, 23, towards the close of Jesus' life, he says, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. This is right before he has the Last Supper with the disciples, right leading into that. John 12, 27, he says, For this purpose I came to this hour. Right? My soul's troubled, but should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, I came for this hour, for this very time. In John 17, verse 1, Jesus praying to the Father, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The fulfillment of prophecy in me dying for the sake of humanity. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. Beloved, God is always on time. Amen? Amen. He's always reliable and you can count on Him. The world may fall apart before His word is undone. Nothing on earth could happen to counteract God's word. Nothing. So when God says something, you can fully trust it. People may fail you. Family may fail you. People who you love may have hurt you and let you down, but God will never break his promises to you. Amen? There's other prophecies here about Jesus. These are about his birth, um, and these will be in the slides that you guys can look at later. But these are all prophecies about his birth. We were told where he would be born, what is the situation would be surrounding his mother. She'd be a virgin. Uh, what tribe he would be born from, his family ties, the time of his birth. All these things were prophesied in the Old Testament and they were fulfilled in the Gospels to a T. In fact, many times Matthew would say, thus fulfilling whatever someone else had already said. Matthew would take that angle multiple times. And these will be in the slides that you can access later because uh, these won't be in your handout. Then the, the ministry of Jesus, what his message would be, was prophesied in the Old Testament. So filled in Luke chapter 4, his triumphant entry, his betrayal, the price that he sold for, the fact that he spit upon. The Old Testament told about all of these things, and it's there. Then we see the time of his death, that he died with criminals, that he was mocked while dying, that he wouldn't have any broken bones, and even the fact that he'd be resurrected. Again, all found in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament narrative. And that's just some of them. There were many, many prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus. Here's the crazy thing, though. The chances of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. I don't even know what that number is called, but it's a lot. That's a bunch of zeros, right? 17 zeros. That's how crazy impossible it would be for one person to fulfill just eight of these prophecies. I just gave you 12 of them. And yet Jesus fulfilled every single one of them to the T. See, here's the point. If Jesus' claims were false, there's only two options. He knew they were false, and he was lying. He was a hypocrite and deliberately misrepresenting. Or he didn't know they were false, and he was deluded and a lunatic. These are the only options we have here, guys. The very claims that Jesus makes about himself remove the option of calling him a good moral teacher and nothing more. You can't say that. Either he's the Lord of glory or he's a lunatic. There's no middle ground because Jesus made strong claims about himself. He is, he's coming down from heaven. He's a divine being and he's here to save the world. But if his claims are true, then you and I only have two options. We can accept it or we can reject it. Are you with me? It's the only two options we have here. So I don't know what you're thinking right now. Uh, I know what I'm thinking right now. God, you're, you're amazing. <laughs> He is absolutely amazing, guys. He lays out the whole thing for us so we don't have to, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe. It's clear. Like, Jesus came exactly when he said he would. He did what he said he would do. You can take it to the bank. And so God's long-suffering forgiveness is all over this time prophecy. Even after thousands of years of spitting in God's face, he still gives him another 500 years. 
to make it right before he cast them out as a nation. Maybe there's things in your life that you're ashamed of. Maybe there's things that you find yourself wanting to give yourself fully to God, and you only end up failing at the end of the day. And you just struggle. Would God actually give me another chance? The nation of Israel and their history tells you, yes, 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 yes. And he had to move on from them for the sole purpose of the the logical and missional reality that someone has to tell the world about Jesus. That's why their time had to close, because Jesus had come and they didn't want to accept him. But there's a door open in heaven for you, beloved. Are you hearing me tonight? No matter where you find yourself, what your story has been, there is opportunity for you tonight to fall upon the rock of Christ, to be broken and give your lives to Him. You can be sure that God is bearing long with you and wanting to prove faithful in your life. So you've got those decision cards. Go ahead and grab those now. Got those decision cards. You can start filling them out. And before I get into this, has this made sense this evening? Yes or no? Okay. Again, I know this is kind of a complicated topic. Go back through the notes, go through the handout, and uh, you'll get the slides. Like I said, if you get the email, if you sign up for the email list, uh, it'll take you to a Google Drive link, and in there you can get access to a PDF of my slides. If you don't know how to do all that stuff and you just want a simple PDF of this, come talk to me after the fact. I'll get your email. If you don't know how to go through that part, we'll try to find a way to get it to you, okay? Because I want to make sure you guys have the resources you need. All right, here's our five options to respond tonight. Number one, I understand that Jesus came right, oops, right on time. I typed that quickly before we started. Um, Jesus would never tell you, got no time. He came right on time. All right. I understand that Jesus came right on time the first time as predicted in the Bible. If you saw that tonight, check that box. Number two, I want to be ready for Jesus when he comes again. I don't want to make the same mistake they made. I don't want to have all the case laid out before me and still choose to do me even though I know he's right. I don't want that to be my story, beloved. If that's you, check that box. I don't want that to be my story. If Jesus has spoken clearly about his second coming and how to be ready, I don't want to plug my ears and ignore the counsel of God. Oh God, don't let that be me. Number three, I'd like to be baptized by full immersion, which we talked about the other night. I have a question. Um, and if you have questions, fine. Number five, I have a prayer request. You can write those on the back. Any questions you have about tonight, if you'd like a visitation, anything else, you can write those in there. And um, if you want to add a six box, um, if you have not given your life to Christ, I would be remiss if I didn't give you a chance to do so. If you've seen clearly tonight that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, and I can trust my future with him, you can make your own sixth box and check that one and say, I want Jesus. I see Jesus wants me, and I want Jesus too. If that's you, you can check that box, and we'll close in prayer, um, and then we'll have one more announcement about tomorrow night's message. God in heaven, thank you that you sent Jesus exactly when you said you would. The historical markers are there every step of the way. You've proven faithful to your people, and if we can trust you with such a complex but beautiful and powerful prophecy of the coming of Jesus, certainly I can trust you with the problems of my life. And I pray if there's people in this room right now who have not given their lives to Jesus, that they would would recognize if you are that intimately concerned with the history of this earth and the story of this earth, then maybe you're that interested in my story. So God, we give you permission to be Lord of all. And so take our hearts, make us fully yours. Lord, we pray that you would forgive our sins and cover them with the blood of Jesus 
that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray uh, that you would strengthen our faith and reliability of Scripture. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.